know, towns take delight in famous people who are from there or live there or were born there. Uh, I've noticed driving through small towns, maybe especially here in Virginia, it just seems, you know, you'll see that little sign next to the, the entering this place that it's the birthplace of so-and-so, that he's from here. And I suppose we feel more important, more justified about ourselves if, if we can't be famous, but that we are at least from the place where famous people are from, uh, from where we are. Imagine this scenario, though. This has to do with famous people and getting near them and trying to associate with them. Uh, you caught your favorite sports star on television, or maybe a politician or something, but believe it for the now, a sports star. And he announces that he's moving, and he's going to move to Midlothian, Virginia, with his new pop star wife. Okay, They're going to live right in Midlothian, just down the street from your house. In the interview, this sports star, of course, we're talking about Travis Kelsey, um, who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs, another story. But in the interview, he goes on and on about how great the burbs are, how excellent Midlothian is. They, they are the best people. There's no other place I'd rather live. These are my people, he says. And so your heart swells with pride and excitement. You're about to be neighbors with this guy. And so you're so excited that he's moving to town to go by and see his place. I mean, maybe you can spot the celebrity couple. Only as you approach, of course, wearing your bright red 87 for his jersey, you realize things have really changed as he moved to the neighborhood. Uh, there's where that house was. Now there's a high black fence and there are privacy shrubs. So you can't even see the house at all. And then as you approach the gate, walking up, in just bold lettering, it reads, no admittance, no solicitors, no visitors. And so dejected, you turn tail and walk back home and just mumble under your breath, why did he want to live here so bad if he never wanted to see us? And I think all the stipulations that we're reading about in the tabernacle how God wants to dwell with his people, kind of feels like this. Uh, it feels like, yeah, he says he wants to be with you, but then he builds this place and it's like it has a big sign. No admittance, no solicitors, no prayer requests, no visitors, perfect holiness allowed only. And yet even with all of that, we saw last week, he indeed wants to be with us. He wants to dwell right next to us. He wants to more than that, share life. We talk about this as fellowship have a relationship with his people. But it just calls this question, how? How can this happen? How can that kind of holy God be near and be close with a people that is not holy like he is? We'll talk about this even, Lord willing, more next week. He needs to turn this tabernacle. Remember, that means a dwelling place. He needs to turn that dwelling place into a meeting place where he doesn't just live near, but he can meet with. Because that's his goal. That's what he's after. And, and we're confident that he has a plan. He has an answer for this, to this dilemma. Again, the holy God with the sinful people. And we have confidence that he has an answer. One, because in Christ we know the answer. But even more than that, because that's his plan all along. God's plan, you could say from the beginning, but actually you go back before the beginning. When he thought to create, he thought to have a relationship with his people. That's what it's always been about. 
It's always been about you knowing him and he knowing you. That's his will. And with his people, he knows sin's going to come to the picture and he's still going to make a way. And of course, Christ is that answer. And it's all pictured for us like some extended illustration as we see this building of what's here called the tabernacle in the tabernacle's very design. Christ is the way to get near this God. So picking up from last time, the big picture of this week and last week is we're talking about, won't you be my neighbor? God is a relational God. He's not a God that's merely far off, separated from us, but He's a God that's come down close. He's moved in close, and He's done so to relate for fellowship, for you to know Him and Him in that way to know you, and for you to share life together. And so the the word is for us to see God coming so close. We need to stop ignoring Him. We need to stop running from Him. We need to stop indulging in our selfishness, and we need to receive Him. We need to draw near ourselves to this relational God. And we saw that last time as we considered over this weekend last, these four responses we have to have to this God. If He's going to move close to us, what's our response to Him? And we see it pictured in the tabernacle. First, when He moves close in, the first thing we need to do is worship His Royal Highness. Worship Him as a king. And we saw that in those opening nine verses of Exodus 25. Because as He moves in close, He says, well, we're going to have a collection And you're going to build me something. You're going to build me a dwelling place. Look at verse 8 of chapter 25. And let them make me a sanctuary. We'll come back to that word. That I may, though, this is the the word we focused on last time, dwell in their midst. And remember, I reminded you, you'll see in your English Bible that word tabernacle, which seems to mean tent for us. But most fundamentally in the Hebrew, we're talking about a dwelling place. He's building a place to dwell, to be neighbors with his people. But though he's inviting them to build this place, he's inviting them to contribute to it. Remember, to give only the best, things fit for a king. But even though he's inviting them to participate, he sets the design, right? Look at verse 9. He's the one in charge. He's the one seeing how he's worshipped. Exodus 25, verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, dwelling place, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God's the one in charge. And as king, he gets to set the parameters how he's worshipped. He gets to set the parameters how this thing's going to be built. You don't get to bring in your own thoughts and intentions and, and designs. He gets to do that. Why? So what this means is, is that this tabernacle, it's very intentional. Every aspect of it really tells us something tells us something about the one who lives in the house. Now, if you think about it, and maybe to our shame or embarrassment at times, but your house says something about you who live in it. I heard one illustration. This guy was referencing his own uh, parents who had been world travelers and missions. You go into their house, and what do you find? You find things taken from all over the world that decorate their home. What kind of things decorate your home? Probably says something about you. It's true even about your staff pastors, not only our homes, but if you go down the hall over here and you go into the pastor's studies that are marked there, and you go into each one of your pastor's studies, each one's going to be different. Why? Because Steve, Bill, and I are not the same, very evidently. What are you going to find in Steve's office? You're going to find it filled with seminary books and sports equipment 
and youth stuff, namely t-shirts, I think, evidently. Go the next one down, you're going to be in Bill's office. What is Bill? He was formerly a graphic designer, and he helped plant a church in El Paso, Texas, where he and Amy were there for over 10 years. So what do you see? See nicely decorated pictures of El Paso on his wall. Then you go into my study, and what do you find? It's crammed with books, pictures of dead theologians, and a 1,600-year-old Greek manuscript right above my desk. What does that say about me? I don't want to know right now. But the house says something about the one who lives in it. And this design of this house says something about the one who lives in it. And in the first place we saw, it says that he's king. He's going to be treated as such. And that means he gets to set the design. And so we must, as he draws near, worship him as king. But second, it also means that he's a God that wants to be close. We saw as we looked through the rest of chapter 25 last week that all of this tabernacle is all about God wants to be present with us. He wants to be near So then we are called to welcome his presence. And it was pictured in the tent itself that will be designed, which would have looked like this or something like this. By the way, all pictures are taken from the ESV study Bible and used with permission. Okay, so we can move on past that. But not only was it the tent itself, but actually, if you recall, where the text begins, where God begins in the designs is not in the actual tent, but it's in the furniture that goes in the tent. Because he actually starts from the inside out. He goes to the most important piece, namely the ark, and he moves out from there. So for starters, we saw that each of these furniture pieces talk about how God wants to be close. We saw it with the ark of the covenant. Remember, that was this chest. It's the footstool. And it has a special lid that was called the mercy seat or atonement cover. But this is where heaven and earth, so to speak, touch This footstool is where, the picture is, God places his feet. He's sitting in heaven on his throne, but his feet, so to speak, come down and they touch here. So this is also in what is known, we'll talk about, the most holy place. You want to meet with God? This is where he meets to, as we talked about last time, speak with his people, be with his people, talk with his people. This is also the place where he finds peace with his people, where atonement happens. Blood comes in here and makes peace with God on this ark. We also talked about the table of presence in the next room. That was this table set up with these huge loaves of bread on them and actually also other wines and other things at times. So you walk right in God's house and what do you see? You see God setting the table for fellowship. He's setting up a meal between you and him. This is all about him sharing life with you, fellowship. He wants to know you like sitting down at a meal with you. And then we also saw the lampstand that was seated across from that table. This stands like almost like a giant tree in this room. It had branches that that come out and, and they shine light, of course. It's a lampstand, which we saw was analogous to even that Aaronic blessing that's in number six. The priest would come out and say, May the face of God shine upon you and give you peace, that you would know the light of his countenance. There's something about seeing God's face, being near him, it is evidenced in light. And that's what this lampstand was showing us. But to back it up, every bit of furniture, all that it was about this tent is telling us what? God wants to be near, He wants to be present. He wants to know you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to interact with you. That's what this is all about. 
And so us in response then, as he is advanced, we need to welcome his advances and draw near to him. We need to reciprocate. We talked about this. But we were already stressing in the introduction, there's a tension here. Tension even seen in this tabernacle. I heard one man call it, this, this building is really a building of contradictions. God wants to be close, but apparently he can only get so close. Because you need to still honor his holiness. And the same is true. God wants you to be near. He, he wants to, you could even put it, it's not inappropriate entirely to talk about it in the colloquial ways. He wants to be your friend. I mean, how you can say that. And yet, he is like no other friend you can imagine because he's perfectly holy. He's separated from all sin. And really, it's that concern that dominates in the designs of the tabernacle in chapters 26 and 27 that we're going to, just in a summary fashion, review this morning. But we see that holiness defines this house because it defines him. And that was actually the very beginning. So back to chapter 25, actually. After he announced the collection of all their, you know, sincere contributions from the heart, remember he told them what they're building. So back to chapter 25, verse 8, God commanded, let them make me a sanctuary, which we would then later know as a tabernacle, but he calls it here a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, live with them. Now, when we think sanctuary, I think off the cuff, we're usually thinking of a safe place. You know, it's a refuge. We ran into the sanctuary and we were saved. But that's not the idea, fundamentally, of this word sanctuary in the Hebrew. It's actually first a sanctified place. That is a holy place. A place devoid of sin, separated for the use of God. That's what God will have built for him. It's a place of holiness because he is a holy God even if that means he must be separated from sinners. So you see, and even the whole remainder of the tabernacle and then eventually the outer courtyard, it just underscores the fact God is holy. God is holy. God is holy. And you're also hearing with every word of that, you are not, you are not, you are not, as you come to worship this God. He's different He wants to be close, but he's different. He must be separate still to show you this. So in the first place, looking at chapter 26, finally then, most of the details of this chapter are dealing with what make up the tent itself, the tent walls, the kind of hangings and coverings that make up the tabernacle that covers it. So look here again, and this is a, you know, representation of the tabernacle. And as we go in chapter 26, we see that God describes it. And again, he starts from, like he did with the ark, moving out. He starts with that that inner room and moves out. So he's starting with the walls of that inner room, and we hear it portrayed in chapter 26, verse 1. He describes the kind of materials, the linens, that will form the inner walls. Look at this, 26.1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains, of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. I just want to point to you. We see that these linens, yes, they're decorated like for royalty, deep blues and purples, but they're made of linens on the inside. 
That's what goes on the inside, linen, as in not leather or wools or anything from an animal. These inner linens only come from plants, like if cotton was what they had. Now, animal skins and things can be used, we'll see them used in the tabernacle, but they're used on the outside. Okay, such that like starting at verse 7 of chapter 26, we start to see there's this protective goat's hair tent and other layers, even leather skins that go over the top of the tabernacle, probably to protect the linens, right? But on the inside, it's all linen. It's all things not made from animals where no living thing had to die. Even the very materials is telling us this place is different because the one who lives here is different. And the point is, the closer you get to God's holy presence, the more pure the material has to be, even by what it's made out of. Such that then, too, as you keep reading through chapter 26, we come to the end, and that chapter closes with the two most important linens that go in the tabernacle. And the first is this veil here. And it's this drapery, this veil, that divides the tabernacle into two rooms. Like We have a family tent at, at home, and it has like this big zipper that divides it in half. This isn't divided in half. It's actually kind of like in thirds. There's a two-third and a third. And the last third is this room that's a square. And it's known as the Holy of Holies. Look at chapter 26, verse 33. And you shall hang the veil, this special veil, from the clasps, and you will bring the Ark of the Testimony in there within the veil. And that's, you know, that's where God meets with His people, on that testimony, on that Ark. So it's going behind this veil. And so He says, And the veil shall separate from you, or for you, the holy place from the most holy, or more literally, the holy of holies. So there's this veil that's going to separate this. And this creates this gradations of holiness as you're in this whole tabernacle complex. And interestingly, this kind of imitates what we saw in Mount Sinai. Do you remember this? Okay, what have we seen? The people are at the bottom of the mountain. They can't get near lest they are destroyed. We saw 74 persons called up to worship God and saw him in chapter 24. And then we're going to see one guy, Moses, gets called all the way up to the top. That's kind of what's pictured here. You have an outer court. You'll have the the holy place. You're going to go through the first veil and be in the holy place where only the priests can go. And then you have one priest who can go once a year behind that last veil we're picturing here into the holy of holies, the very throne room of God. God wants to be near, but he can only get so close. The tabernacle is telling us that he's holy over and over. Such that you have in the other screen described here in verses 36 and 37. This serves as the door out of the tent and it takes you into the courtyard. There's going to be a fence, in effect, that captures this tent and the surrounding area. And it's that other veil that separates the holy place from the courtyard, takes you outside under the sky. But before we turn from that, I just want to highlight one more thing. Look at this diagram again. And you see that the doors, the door to the outside and then the door into the most holy place, these veils look very similar, don't they? They're described almost identically. 
save one glaring difference, and it's that which is embroidered on that inner veil. You see these, we looked at them a little bit, the cherubim. And we heard about the cherubim, right? The cherubim, already we heard about them, they were on top of the mercy seat, on top of the atonement cover. Why? Because cherubim are always associated with the presence of God. God has all kinds of angels and angels that do different things or represent different stuff. But there's one angel that's associated with the presence of God. It's cherubim. So it's no mistaking that you see them here on this veil. It's telling you God is near. God is close. Wherever God is near, you're going to find these cherubim, these guardian angels, these large winged creatures we see like described in Ezekiel chapter 1. And so it's telling you, you see them on the veil, the priests go in there, they know they can't go any further, and they know God, that ark, is right on the other side. God is holy. There's something separating us. Now, as we turn to chapter 27, we actually exit the tabernacle itself, and we come into the courtyard. So now you see the fencing and so forth that divides really the whole tabernacle complex from all of the other Israelites. You'll notice outside the eastern door, there's a single average Joe Israelite looking to come in. And what's first described as he starts to describe the whole tabernacle court, you'll notice as chapter 27 begins, is this bronze altar. And again, which underscores, even though you've come out of the tent, God is holy. You know, as you're coming nearer the tent, God is holy. Everything about this says God is different, separate from sin. And it's evidenced here as the first thing described is that bronze altar located right there. What's the significance of this? This is a large altar, like some four by five feet. You would see it and it would just be sacrifices blazing on this thing pretty much 24-7. So, for the average Joe Israelite, When you go into that courtyard, what is the first thing that catches your eye? You can't even look past it. This blazing altar is where your sacrifices go. It's telling you, if you're going to get near this God, what what better you have in hand? A sacrifice. You better have blood because you have no right to be here otherwise. Just emblazing on our mind. You must come by a sacrifice. There's no other way to get close. But even as you look at the whole complex, what stands out about the whole thing that evidences God is holy is, again, the differing materials used to construct this place. Namely, we saw like with the tabernacle, the linens, the closer you got to God, the more pure they were. Well, the farther you get out from the holy of holies, the decreasing value of the metals used. So, for example, it's a tent. You have to have frames for the tent. In the frames of the tent itself, the tabernacle, they were golden clasps with then pegs and silver bases. Well, once you move out to the courtyard, what do you find? You find silver clasps and bronze bases. What is the altar itself made out of? What's it called? It's the bronze altar. When you were in the holy place, around the ark, pure gold, everything's gold. You start moving out of that tent, everything becomes bronze. Everything's decreasing in value. 
Again, underscoring, the closer you get to God, the more holy things are becoming. The farther you get away from Him, illustrated by the downgraded elements, you're moving away from His holiness. And that God, who made and designed His house just that way, to remind us, the closer you get, the closer you're getting to my holiness, that God hasn't changed. He's the same God. He's as holy as He was then as He is now. And He hasn't diminished in the least. And His call for us is, honor my holiness. You, my people, be holy like I am holy. And that's not just an Old Testament command. It's a New Testament one too, picked up there. But understand this. God doesn't present our calling to holiness quite like He mainly did in types and figures to Israel. So our call of holiness is not some kind of call to honoring sacred spaces or wearing special clothes. That is not inherently more holy. The call in the New Testament to be holy is not about sacred objects. Hence, we don't call this room on purpose. We do not call this room you're in right now a sanctuary. Why? Because there's nothing special about it. It's just walls and drywall and chairs and carpet with stains. Nothing makes this room particularly holy in and of itself. It's not like we were in the building plans. Go ask Charles Piper. He knows all about this. It's not like we found the special place where God's on the property at 1200 Coalfield Road. Well, we better put the worship center there. That's not how this works. Similarly, we don't have sacred objects around. There's no relics here. There's no splinters of the cross to go rub and get holiness from. There's no tooth of John the Baptist that I can go share with you. There's no altars. There's no incense censers. Why? Holiness is not ultimately about those things. And even so, that's why whoever's preaching, we don't wear like a special robe. I, I don't wear that cute little collar or a sash or something that just says holy on it or even a suit. Those things might be fine. But they don't make you more holy, that's for sure. Whenever the New Testament calls you to holiness, it's not about how you dress. It's not about what you wear. It's not what about religious activity you do or some special order or liturgy. It's about your character. This is the New Testament calling to holiness. Being consecrated, holy, set apart to God is about living a holy life. Separate from sin obedient to his word. You want to be holy? Live the obedient Christian life. So for example, Paul charges the Thessalonians with this. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God. Okay. And of course, we're like, what's God's will for my life? What does he want for me? Does he want me to buy a Honda Odyssey or a Toyota Sienna? No, here's the will of God for your life. He tells you. What does he say it is? Your sanctification. Or let me translate that just so we're really clear. Your holiness. 
And which is more holy, the Odyssey or the Siena? No. What is your sanctification? Because he tells you, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's holiness. You want to worship God in holiness? Don't put on a tie. Put on a chaste life. We've been talking about building God's house. That's the picture we're seeing here. Paul picks up on this kind of imagery in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And he talks about we're like God's house. And we're some of the furniture in the house. And in light of being in God's house, we should be holy like the furniture is of his house. Hence, Paul says it like this, 2 Timothy 2 verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use. What does that mean? Set apart as holy, and so then useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so then we also pick up on something. When you are separate from sin, you are more useful to him. You actually get to experience more of what he's like. We can be forgiven, but until we walk in holiness, you won't know what a holy God is like. You won't really relate with him as he is holy. That's how we can honor his holiness. It's with our very lives. In that way, I trust you're seeing, holiness is a whole lot harder than merely changing your clothes and the way you dress. It's about a change of heart. And that's where ultimately the trouble lies, isn't it? Our sinful hearts. That's what keeps us out of more fellowship, more enjoyment in any kind of relationship with God. We keep putting this sin barrier in the way. Now, we'll talk more about that. But I want you to understand this much. In the very beginning... This is what Adam and Eve had in the garden. Unseparated, unhindered, full fellowship with God face to face. And what got in the way? Sin did. And it drove them out. It drove them out of the garden and drove them out of his presence. Now that's hopeless for all of us because we're all sinners in this room. Save this. This God has a plan. He has a plan to get us back with him. Because what we're going to see, as I review now, Genesis through the book of Revelation, that's the whole Bible. We're going to have to, be, we're going to, have to go fast, okay? But from beginning to end, this has been God's plan, is to be with his people and to have fellowship with them. And he knows sin's going to get in there, so he's going to make a way to get through that. But I don't want to show you that in just the whole story of Scripture. Because that's even what the tabernacle's been telling us. Did you see it? The tabernacle, every step of the way, is about taking a step back to the Garden of Eden. Let me show you this. Let's turn back to the very beginning. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. So go left in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Where at first there were only Adam and Eve... And we know from reading in verse 8 of Genesis 3 that God had such a close fellowship, it is says that he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
He walked with them. As the song goes, is not far off. He talked with them in the cool part of the day. He had fellowship with them. But we're in Genesis 3 after all. That kind of intimacy is stopped. It's changed because sin entered the picture. Adam disobeyed. Man's relationship with God's been severed. There's now a veil that's blocking us off from God. Such that man gets judged to death. Look at verse 19 at the end. God pronounces judgment on Adam. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. But that kind of death really begins as Adam and Eve are separated from God. Literally, spatially, as they are evicted from his presence in the garden. Look at Genesis 3, 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent Adam out of the garden of Eden, sent him out to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, God drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, it's like its gate, He placed the cherubim. Oh, interesting. This is the first time you see cherubim in the Bible. The next time is in the tabernacle that we've seen. And every time we see them again, you always find cherubim and then you see God there. Why? Because what are they there to do? He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life to make sure that we couldn't go back to his holy presence. So I want to show you three things here that should be jogging our minds about the tabernacle here in Genesis. First, those strange angelic beings, these cherubim. Notice they're stationed east of the garden. Again, to guard the door. You can't go back to God because of your sin, and the angel's going to make sure you don't get too close. And would not those cherubim emblazoned on the veil remind the high priest You have no business going past this veil unless you come with blood because sin has made a barrier between you and God. Not to mention, did you notice that the Garden of Eden seemingly has like a gate? So if you're going to leave the Garden of Eden, and did you catch it in the tabernacle? All of the doorways face to the east. So when you are approaching God, you're going west into the courtyard into the holy place, and then one guy goes once a year with blood, and he goes behind the last veil right before the mercy seat. You go past the brazen altar. You go into the holy place, past the bread, past the lampstand, through the veil, right back to the presence of God. And then did we mention the lampstand? Remember that lampstand? You would have passed it too. And what did we say this kind of looks like? The way it's described, it's described as like a living tree that was in the tabernacle. Just like the tree of life in the garden. And yet, because of our sin, we are barred access lest we come with sacrifice to enjoy the light of His face. See, looking here in Genesis, this is what God wanted in the very beginning. And the tabernacle is a picture of how one might get back, how we can enjoy fellowship with God, walking with Him again. And get this, God's going to succeed in His plan because we're going to skip to the end and look at the end of the story. So you can turn there or just listen. But this is what Revelation 21 and 22 tell us. God's going to see to it that one day there's going to be no veil, there's going to be no barriers, and there's going to be no hindrances anymore. Now I'm going to ask, is that what you hope for? 
Is that what you want is your reward of heaven? Because that's the whole point of it. Eternal life with God. It's not about merely escaping hell. It's not about being carefree with no work to do, like some long retirement. No, heaven is about being with God and him being with you. That's eternal life. Just as it was in the garden, but way better. Because you can never mess it up. Look at Revelation chapter 21. This is the great picture of when heaven and earth again kiss and meet in eternity. Here's how it's described. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, so this is the declaration. This is what this is all about. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And can you guess in the Greek what that dwelling place word is? But tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Not so he can lay his hand on them. But when the veil's removed, he's going to come near. And what is he going to do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For those former things, those tabernacles, those veils, those pictures, they're all gone. This is the way. This is his goal. This is his plan for all of creation, that you would be with him forever. And we see that those way back to God, it's back to a garden. You can't refrain from reading it. Look at chapter 22. Just the imagery of heaven shouts this to us. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, guess who we encounter again? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Get this. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. but we're sinners. How do we get there? What's the way? I trust you know it by now, but Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And I hope you understand that all of these pieces in the tabernacle, they're all pointing out that Jesus is the way back. Think about it. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. And then he gave up his life. What happened in that temple that day? That veil, torn in two. Access to God has been won by his death. Jesus himself is the mercy seat where the wrath of God is satisfied and peace with God is won. He himself is the bread of heaven that supplies our every need. He himself is the light of the world that gets God's face to shine upon us. 
He himself is the ultimate tabernacle of God. God coming down from heaven to dwell among us and show us God. He himself even is the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of all those who trust in him. He himself is our high priest, who, get this, not only goes in on our behalf, but then he ushers us into the Holy of Holies, here to be with him. This is eternal life. Jesus is the way. Why? Because he is the only one who can deal with all of your sin. And so to get there, what do we do? we got to receive his advances, don't we? And so in the first place, that means for some of you, you're not yet in Christ. You need to come and trust in Christ. You need to abandon all other hopes of being holy. Because you got to understand, we said this last time, there's no other door, there's no other invitation coming than through Jesus Christ. Sincerity is not going to get you there. Being a good mom or dad's not going to get you there. Being upright is not going to get you there. Your sin has separated you from God, and there's only one way to deal with it, through faith in Jesus Christ. But second, those of us that have already believed the church, what have we seen? You're receiving him, you're taking steps toward him as you start to be like him, live like him, be holy. Live like he's your king. Obey his word. Grow in holiness. Being like Jesus. Which, what does that mean? It doesn't mean special suits and dressing up. It means being full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, the way he's treated you at the cross. Being more like that. But third, that also means to take a step towards him means you got to spend time with him. You got to know him. Which means you got to, yeah, you got to mean his word and you got to pray. We've talked about that some. But do you know, God dwells among the gathering of his people, especially. That's what Jesus meant. We studied this in Matthew 18 when he said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, I said earlier that this, there's nothing special about this room, that's why we don't call it a sanctuary. Well, in a way, I was only partially right. This room right now is a sanctuary. But you want to know why? It's not the carpet. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Christ, who then comes to live in you, enthrones on the praises of his people as they hear his word. This is where Christ is. This is where you encounter him. Don't neglect drawing near to him with us. But finally, there remains, in some sense, a special way again that Christ meets with his people. And it's actually at this table. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, or it's just the word fellowship, in the blood of Christ? And the bread we break, is it not a fellowship in the body of Christ? As his people gather around and we confess our sins, we confess our failings, we confess all our unholiness, our unfitness to draw to him, well, there he meets us again, reminding us what he's already done at the cross, reminding us that the veil's torn, the way is opened, the Father and I are calling you in. Renounce your sin once again and come enjoy fellowship with us, he says.
And so let's do that. Let's come near to the God who's drawn near to us. And as I pray, I'm going to go ahead and ask the men who have already been designated to come forward to help us distribute the elements to celebrate this table. Let's pray together. Father, it is an awesome thing to come into your presence. Help our spiritual eyes to see that once more. Help our hearts to even tremble that we get called in. And we're not called in like to the principal's office, but because of the covering of Christ, we are called in and embraced. We are loved. So we confess, forgive us our sins. We confess our failings. Forgive us for triteness, being thoughtless about you. But we revel in that you're a gracious God who's given a way. And that you didn't just make a way, you made us go on the way. Thank you for all that you've done in Christ for giving us. Call that to mind as we come to celebrate this table. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.